All right, well, welcome back, Trinity Church. This is Pastor Joel, and we're going to look at the Gospel of Luke again. Um, this week, chapters 9 and 10. And uh, in chapters 9 and 10, Jesus continues to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel through miracles and healing, and uh, also through his wisdom and knowledge of the law. But he also um, continues to build up his new community, um, this new Israel. Uh, last week, we saw him selecting the 12 and identifying them as leaders. Now we see Jesus commissioning his disciples to bring the good news of the kingdom through preaching and healing, just like Jesus does. We see this first with the 12 in chapter 9. We also see it uh, with 72 others in chapter 10. And so Jesus is sharing his authority and his power with his disciples. And Luke devotes um, a lot of content in these chapters to showing how the disciples wield that authority. We're going to see them do it well, and we're also going to see them kind of stumble about and fall and doubt, and even in a couple of instances, um, the power kind of seems to go to their head, kind of puffs them up. So as we move through the chapters, I'll draw it out, but notice the contrast between how Jesus uses his power and authority and how the disciples wield their uh, power and authority, the power that Jesus gives them. Um, so Luke 9 uh, opens with Jesus commissioning the 12, the 12 leaders, the 12 disciples to preach the gospel and to heal. And when you read or when you hear it read, notice in verses 1 and 2 that Jesus gives them the power and authority over all demons, um, to cure diseases, to proclaim the kingdom of God, um, to heal. And, and, and with this healing, just notice um, healing in this cultural context, it's not just a kind of a physiological blessing where the body is restored, but healing would have been a sociological blessing. It's a restoration of an individual to the community. Um, many of those who were healed would have uh, been considered unclean, uh, which meant that they couldn't participate in temple worship. And so uh, uh, many of them uh, as unclean individuals would have lived on the margins of Israelite community. And so when um, they're healed, they are restored um, from isolation uh, into community. Um, notice too that Luke mentions the empire in the form of Herod. Herod takes note of Jesus and his disciples and what they're doing and he's intrigued. And so we have a, a kind of shout out to the empire in this chapter um, as Herod is curious and intrigued um, as to who Jesus is and what he's all about. Um, the disciples have been sent out by Jesus, um, the 12, and they now return and they report on their mission, um, telling Jesus everything they've done. And Jesus and the disciples then withdraw and uh, head for a town called Bethsaida. Um, the crowds follow Jesus, though. And so Luke tells us, um, he's careful to tell us that even though Jesus has withdrawn um, with his disciples, um, maybe to give the disciples a kind of rest and hear all kind of debrief with them and hear what they've done. The crowds follow him and Luke is careful to tell us that Jesus welcomes the crowd. Uh, he welcomes them. He teaches them. He heals those who need healing. And so Jesus doesn't push the crowd away. He makes time for the crowd. Um, the day with the crowd grows long and it's time to eat. And the disciples advise Jesus to send the crowd away to find food. But Jesus tells his disciples, he says, you give them something to eat. Now, remember, Jesus has shared his authority and power with them. And so it raises the question here, how are they going to use that? Are they even aware of it? Um, are they aware that here's a time to use your power and authority, not just to impress the crowd or to demonstrate your 
um, power over demons, but to serve and fill their bellies with food, with good food. Um, but the disciples don't see it. They reply, look, we've only got five loaves and two fish. And so very similar to Israel in the desert when they're traveling with Moses, they complain about having no food in the desert and they forget who they are as God's people and that God will always provide for them. The disciples have, have in, a, in a similar way, forgotten who they are and who they follow. And so Jesus reminds them by uh, this miraculous feeding of uh, 5,000 men and, and all their family. Jesus has the crowd break up into groups of 50 and he takes the loaves and the fish and he blesses them and he breaks the bread and distributes the fish and the bread throughout the crowd and all eat, it says, and are satisfied and there are 12 baskets of broken pieces left over. Um, chapter 9 then moves to the next scene. Jesus now is praying with his disciples and they're alone. And he asks them, who do the crowd say I am? And the disciples answer that some say he's John the Baptist, others say he's Elijah, others of the uh, say that he's one of the prophets of old. But then Jesus asks, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers for the rest of them. He says, the Christ of God. This is Peter's famous confession. And Jesus affirms Peter's answer as true um, implicitly because he says, don't tell anybody. Um, and he warns them not to tell anybody because he knows that people will likely mistake Jesus as a simple um, political revolutionary if he um, is uh, labeled uh, the Christ of God. Now this discussion of Jesus's identity naturally leads to what Jesus says next. Um, he intimates, he tells the disciples what's to come. He says that he must suffer, he must be killed, but on the third day he will be raised. Um, Jesus follows this prediction of his own sacrificial death in a fitting way, and that's with a call to sacrificial discipleship. In 9.23, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So just as Jesus used his power and authority to love and serve sacrificially, even unto death, so must those who would claim him as their leader. Um, so must his disciples. Now, Jesus's focus on death and sacrifice, you might say they contrast pretty significantly with the power and authority that we see in Jesus, um, that we've seen in Jesus so far. And that contrast is heightened in the next scene. Um, this is the transfiguration. Jesus takes Peter and John and James up on the mountain to pray. And as Jesus prays, he is transfigured so that his face it's, the text says it changes and his clothes are dazzling white. Um, and so his body and it changes such that it, the light emanating from his body, this glory emanating from, from Jesus, um, just uh, renders his clothes this shining, dazzling, blinding light. And, and what hap what's happening here is that Jesus is disclosing to those watching, those disciples who are with him, his true status and his glory. Uh, two men appear with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, and um, and they uh, Luke tells us that they discuss with Jesus his departure, um, what's about to happen in Jerusalem, and uh, in the Greek that word departure is Exodus, um, and so they're discussing with Jesus his death, his resurrection, this Exodus, um, ultimately an Exodus that will lead to his exaltation in um, the ascension. It's also an exodus that 
all of his people, all Christians joined to him by the Holy Spirit, um, will also partake in. Um, in Christ's exaltation and his ascension, his people too are exalted and brought into the presence of God. Um, just as Paul says in Colossians 3, our life is hidden with Christ in God. And so just like any human being would do, Peter looks at this and he's dumbfounded, he's mar- he's in- he's, he's, uh, he marvels. And um, as, a Mo- as Moses and Elijah start to leave, Luke tells us, um, Peter kind of just starts throwing out ideas. Hey, let's make three tents, uh, one for each individual, uh, one for Elijah and Moses and one for Jesus. And Peter probably has in mind the Feast of Booths. Um, that, that's a feast that Israel celebrates annually, uh, and it commemorates their time and wandering in the desert after the Exodus. Peter seems to recognize that this event is obviously significant and not just kind of a present way, but an eschatological way. And he's kind of trying to put the pieces together and preserve this moment and perpetuate it into something um, meaningful. But as he's speaking, Luke tells us, a cloud comes down, right? And we've seen clouds before in the Old Testament, symbols of God's presence. A cloud comes down and surrounds everyone on the mountain. And they're afraid as they enter the cloud, Luke tells us. And then a voice speaks from the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Now you'll remember that at Jesus' baptism, God spoke to Jesus and said, you are my son. But now he speaks to the disciples and he says, this is my son. Listen to him. So God, the highest authority, has himself by his own words identified Jesus as his son to the disciples who are watching. And he commands the disciples to listen, not to Moses or Elijah, but to Jesus. And so it's Jesus who will be the final authority that interprets and reveals God's word as it's contained in the law and the prophets. It's Jesus who will guide them into the true promised land, this new creation that the law foreshadows and the prophets foretell. And so Luke tells us um, the disciples' reaction. They keep silent, um, likely because they're in awe, they're amazed, but also because they don't quite understand what they've seen. But over time, um, they'll begin to understand. The next section in Luke 9 shows us um, a misunderstanding and a failure on the part of the disciples. First, um, they can't heal a man possessed by demons. Then they start arguing between themselves about who's the greatest. But in response to this argument, Jesus takes a child. And remember, a child in this culture would have been the most unimportant, unproven member of Jesus of a Jewish society. And Jesus takes the child and stands the child by his side and says, you know, guys, if you're humble enough to receive this child in my name, then you receive me. Whoever receives me and whoever receives me, he says, receives the one who sent me. Um, And so the emphasis here is on humility, a posture of of reception. Um, As one writer puts it, um, Jesus is essentially saying, you become great by accepting not asserting your spirit not your size makes the difference Um, again the emphasis on humility and accepting receiving it's a posture of faith it's a posture of weakness and jesus makes this point in response to the disciples clinging to um, status Um, but we see more stumbling on the part of the disciples Um, The disciples come to Jesus next and complain that somebody is casting out demons in Jesus' name, 
but he doesn't follow with them. And Jesus responds that if he isn't an enemy, he's an ally. In other words, this, this is not about the glory of, of our particular posse or group. It's about something much, much greater than that. It's about God's mission against the enemy, against the devil. Um, the disciples need to realize what's truly at stake. Um, finally, in chapter 9, Jesus sets his sights on Jerusalem, just as he discussed previously with Elijah and Moses um, and his disciples. And this is a turning point in the gospel, um, because here, from here on out, we'll see Luke tracking Jesus' movements near and near to Jerusalem from chapter 9 all the way to chapter 19. Um, as he sets his sights on Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples stop in a Samaritan village. And here again, we see the disciples missing um, the whole, uh, how they should use the power and authority that Jesus has given them. They enter a Samaritan village and they begin to make arrangements to stay. But when the Samaritans find out that Jesus is heading for Jerusalem, that that's his final destination, they refuse to let him stay there. And remember, the Samaritans and Jews hated one another. And Jerusalem would have been a symbol for the Samaritans of Jewish elitism, of Jewish racism. Um, and so the disciples are incredulous and they're uh, outraged and they say, hey, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire to incinerate the town? And Luke doesn't tell us what Jesus says. He simply says, Jesus rebukes him. I mean, in a sense, Jesus says, don't be idiots. Of course not. That's not what I'm here to do. Um, and so the disciples regularly struggle to relate uh, to Jesus's own power and authority, to understand it and to use the power and authority they've been given in a life-giving way. It's something that they're, it's unwieldy to them at this point. Um, their hearts are not quite calibrated to um, strength and weakness. And um, Jesus will continue to embody that himself, ultimately in the cross. Um, and the disciples finally will understand that as they're given insight by the Spirit. Luke 9 closes with Jesus calling attention to the urgency of following him, that it must wait for nothing. Um, he's more important, he says, or he he um, he shows uh, he's more important than um, even than honoring one's father by giving him a proper burial. He's more important than saying final goodbyes to one's family. Um, what Jesus is showing us is that his call, his mission is urgent and it takes primacy over every other calling, uh, that the world and its customs and codes of honor and natural relations are all falling away. And that doesn't mean that we should shirk from all our duties to, to one another. But we should recognize that our commitment and loyalty to Jesus, to um, Jesus, our commitment and loyalty to Him, will inevitably run at cross purposes with the world, so that our love and honor for Jesus may be interpreted as rejection and hate by others, even by our own families. This leads us to chapter ten. Uh, Luke ten begins with Jesus commissioning the seventy-two to go ahead of Him into the towns He plans to visit as He makes His way to Jerusalem. Remember, he's already um, commissioned and given his authority to the 12. Now he gives it to 72 more. And there are many things we can note about this passage, but here are a couple of things. First, the number 72 or the number 70, because they both show up in this way. The number 72 is almost certainly significant. Um, for any reader of the Old Testament, it would recall the table of nations in Genesis 10. Um, and so in Luke, it seems to symbolize the Gentile nations to whom Jesus's good news would go. 
Um, this fits with Luke's emphasis in his gospel and in the book of Acts on the universality of the gospel, that it's not just for Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, but for the whole world to the ends of the earth, um, as it says in Acts 1.8. A second point about this is that Je Jesus's instructions to the 72, when you read them, they almost sound kind of anxious, uh, anxious pressing, urgent. Um, it has overtones of, of, of a general sending his soldiers out on mission. So there's these militaristic kind of overtones. Um, and that's because Jesus has come to wrench the earth from the kingdom of Satan um, and claim the kingdom of earth for himself, uh, claim the earth for himself so that he can restore it. And the disciples are a part of this military mission. And so in this story, after the 72 return and they're rejoicing at their power, you, Jesus says this strange thing. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, Jesus is most likely being prophetic here, um, foretelling the fall of Satan through Christ's resurrection and ascension. Um, but he's also connecting the disciples ministry um, as part of his campaign against the devil, um, as part of the work towards Satan's fall. Note, too, that Jesus tells them to rejoice not merely that they have power over spirits, but that their name is written in heaven. Um, that is, rejoice in your acceptance, not just your power. Again, that's an emphasis by Jesus on weakness, on a heart of receiving and accepting, not asserting oneself. Um, it's only with this humble and grateful heart that the disciples will ever be able to wield their power and authority in a way that truly combats uh, Satan. Now, two well-known episodes conclude chapter 10. First, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And many of you have heard this parable. Um, it's a famous parable. Um, a lawyer or teacher of the law comes to Jesus and says, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answers, love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus answers, do this and live. So far, so good. But then the lawyer comes back and says, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers that question with the story of the Good Samaritan. A man is robbed and beaten and left for dead. First, a priest walks by. And when he sees the man, he passes by on the other side. A Levite walks by and he does the same thing, passes by on the other side. But a Samaritan walks up. And that says the Samaritan had compassion. The Samaritan cared for the man at great expense to himself. And Jesus concludes the parable with a question to the lawyer, which proved to be a neighbor? Or perhaps you might say, which would you want as a neighbor? Which treated others as he wanted to be treated? And the lawyer admits that it's the Samaritan uh, who would have been a half-breed in the eyes of the Jews. So the lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? But Jesus, as it were, kind of turns that question back and says, well, which kind of person would you want as a neighbor? And of course, if you want him as a neighbor, then you should be that kind of neighbor to others. Treat others as you want to be treated. And so uh, the, Jesus deftly kind of confronts um, so much uh, of the self-righteousness in, in the lawyer as he tells this story. Um, next, we have the story of Mary and Martha. Again, a pretty famous story. Mary and Martha invite Jesus and host him in their home, 
and Mary sits at Jesus' feet listening to his teaching while Martha is anxiously making arrangements and showing hospitality. And Martha comes to Jesus and starts complaining and says, make, Mar make Mary help me. Look at all the work I'm doing. Tell Mary to help. But Jesus defends Mary. Um, he says essentially that he doesn't want just a show of hospitality and service, that he wants to be heard. Um, that the way to truly honor him is to listen to him. Uh, remember in chapter 9, God spoke out of the cloud, telling the disciples that this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Jesus brings God's kingdom, but not in the way that we would expect. He can't simply be assimilated into the current state of affairs. He's bringing a new Israel, a new community. And that means his mission is not just to free Israel from Roman rule, but to overthrow a much greater oppressor, Satan himself. And if Satan is going to be overthrown, it requires a new orientation to leadership, to power, to authority. It means leadership through service. It means strength born through weakness. And if we're to calibrate our hearts in this new direction and follow Jesus on his mission, what Jesus shows us in this strange little interaction with Mary and Martha is that if we're going to use power well and follow Jesus on his mission, the first step is not to take up arms like kind of the disciples wanted to do and rain down fire from heaven. It's not to presume that we have the strength or ability to assert ourselves or help Jesus on his mission. The first step is to sit at his feet as Mary did and listen to him and hear him because only then as we listen and we're confronted, we're assured, and understand, only then will we live boldly and bear fruit as Jesus' disciples. So in these two chapters, in chapters 9 and 10, we continue to see Jesus using his authority to serve and heal and point others to God's embranking kingdom. He also shares his authority and power with his people, not just the twelve, but with the seventy-two others, who remember, um, symbolize the universal worldwide intent of the gospel. This emphasis on the nations prepares us for Luke's account of Pentecost and Acts, where God will pour out his spirit on all people, men and women, Jew and Gentile, high status and low status. Um, in these chapters, we also see this, the new fledgling community given power by Jesus and authority by him. They relish and rejoice in their role, even as they struggle to fulfill it and understand their calling which is to hold their power and authority with humility, using it to serve and love others sacrificially. Meanwhile, we see Jesus setting his sights on Jerusalem, where he will make his final exodus through his death, resurrection, and ascension. Uh, and before that exodus, he will do his final battle um, with Satan himself. And so that's um, a, an overview of chapters 9 and 10. And... Uh, Next week, we'll look at chapters 11 and 12 as we move through the Gospel of Luke.